this amazing document that gives us insight. Without this, we wouldn't know so many things. We wouldn't know who Paul was. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't understand the, the foundation of the church. We wouldn't understand the simplicity of it, what God has called us to. We would not be aware of or understand what it really means to be born again, what, what this new breed of people looked like. And it started 2,000 years ago, and as we will see, especially Wednesday night, we are in the same age that this document begins. And so the things written herein are as pertinent to us today as they were when they first happened, when they first occurred. I want to talk specifically to the new breed this morning. If you're born again by faith in Jesus Christ, the practicalities of this book are are fascinating to me, how we are to live. And we're going to get into much more of that, how we are to live, the great doctrines of the church, the teachings of the church, as we get into the book of Romans, probably starting next Sunday. But this morning... Well, let's just go ahead and pray. Father, I ask for hearts open, especially among your children, among those who believe, that you would address us personally and we would hear you personally. That we would take your exhortation, Father. And we would weigh in the balance of our own lives with your word. Thankful, Father, for your grace and your mercy that brings forgiveness and sanctification and, of course, salvation. But also desiring, Father, to grow in righteousness even as we practice righteousness. Lord, we ask your Spirit to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 28, verse 1. When they had been brought safely through... Then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in, and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out, because of the heat, and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius. We'll just call him Winnie the. Who welcomed us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. So that's the text. That's the story we're going to consider and look at this morning. But I want to begin by reading to you from 1 Peter chapter 2. If you'll just listen to this. Peter writes, If when 
you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. If when you do what is right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Peter goes on to say, for you've been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. There is no salvation without suffering. There is no salvation without suffering. No one is saved from sin and sorrow from depravity and despair without suffering. Suffering is part of the deal. Why? Because there is one, as we talked about on Wednesday night, there is one who is contrary to your good. Contrary to the things of God, there is one who is set against, an enemy who is opposed to your salvation and to mine. He is one who will fight tooth and nail against anything expressing the goodness and the glory of God. There's a fight on, gang. And we need to remember and understand constantly that salvation is a battle that was fought and won. It's not an easily handed over thing. Because where there is war, where there is a battle, there is always suffering. Without suffering, there is no salvation. Salvation came to us through suffering, through the suffering of Jesus Christ. He suffered that I might live. After His resurrection, on that same day, Jesus met up with two men. You may recall the story. Two men walking on the road to Emmaus, coming down from Jerusalem. And on their way, as they're discussing all the things that had been going on, Jesus comes up to them, and they didn't recognize Him. It's one of my favorite vignettes in the Bible. They're talking about His crucifixion, and a more fantastic claim that He had actually resurrected that morning. The two men hadn't seen him, but they had heard word that some of the women had seen him. And even Peter and John went down to the tomb and didn't find him there. And they're perplexed by these things and and discussing these things. And after listening to them, Jesus walking along, he says in Luke 24, 25, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into His glory? There is no salvation without suffering. And Jesus suffered more than any other ever will for your sake and for mine. My salvation comes through the suffering of Jesus. But as Peter also wrote, and as we read... You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in His steps. What are you saying, Peter? How much are you willing to suffer for another person's salvation? What are you willing to take that somebody else might 
receive Jesus and be saved? How hard a life are you willing to go through for the sake of another person? See, if you've given your life to Jesus, if you are of that new breed of people, born again of the Spirit of God, you have your salvation. You have your hope. You have your future. It is secure in Jesus. But what about those who don't? And am I willing now in this new position as a child of God, am I willing to suffer so that someone else might come into the same position that God has blessed me with? The promise of salvation. How much are you willing to do it? You might recall that of the Apostle Paul, back in Acts chapter 9, Jesus said, He's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Please understand that Paul was not going to suffer to prove himself worthy of his salvation. Nobody does. Jesus suffered so that we would be saved. But once saved, Jesus said of Paul, I'm going to show him some suffering. Because through the suffering of Paul, there will be multiple others who will be saved as well. Now I read those things and I confess to you that my heart goes, yeah, bring it on, suffering for Jesus, man. Bravado swells up in my heart and I say, through the storms, Lord, to the grave. For His namesake, man, bring it on. I will suffer the big storms for Jesus. The disciples said that too, didn't they? On the night that they would all flee like frightened sheep and run away from Him, the disciples and Peter, well, they said in Matthew 26, 35, Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I'll go to the grave for you, Lord. And all the disciples said the same thing too. And I don't know about you, but talk of big suffering has a tendency to kind of swell my pride. Yeah, I'll go through it. Yeah, I'll fight the good fight. I'll suffer for Jesus. That kind of talk fills my sails with bluster. Stirs up my swagger. I'll be persecuted for the Lord. Well, Paul with Luke and Aristarchus and a centurion named Julius had just weathered a massive set of big storms. In fact, I would venture to guess it was the worst set of storms in Paul's life. He had been through three shipwrecks. He had spent a night and a day in the deep. We know this. He claims this, explains this to us. But after all of that, he would go through this this set of storms. We studied it Wednesday in Acts 27. One storm after another after another, just trying to get to Rome to to where he's in chains. Paul wants to go to Rome, but the storms are intense. It was a bad time to be on the Mediterranean Sea. It was early winter. And for weeks they had been battered and brutalized by the wind and the waves. In fact, if you'll go back to chapter 27, listen to this. In verse 20, Luke writes, Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. They gave up hope. They were just being buffeted by the waves, no idea where they were, where they were going. And they were hopeless. And, and down in verse 27, it says, When the fourteenth night came, 
As we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They looked out, they could see, they couldn't tell what island or, or continent this was, but they just saw that there was a bay in the distance. We're told further along in verse 39, when day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. Casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind, they were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast, and remaining unmovable, the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. Soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention, and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. 276 people were saved in this massive wreck. And chapter 28 verse 1 says, When they had all been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. Now again, Wednesday, we talked about this. It's obvious that the devil did not want Paul to get to Rome. That the winds were contrary. And that word contrary is used to describe Satan. And all the way there, the devil was opposed to the possibility that Paul might arrive in Rome. Why? Look at the damage that Paul did in Rome. The prison letters, at least four of them in the New Testament, written from Rome. The lives that he would touch. The change that would come upon the world. Right up in the face of one who is opposed to the good things of God. They reached this land after all these big storms. The big deal. And if that wasn't enough, Paul is bitten by a viper. The old serpent sends in his trusty ally. A snake now bites Paul. Storms are one thing. But snakes... Why did it have to be snakes? (laughs) I'll fight the big storms, Lord. I'll weather them. But if I get a hangnail, I cry out, Come on! I'm tailgated. Or I can't get the guy in front of me to go over 25 MPH. And I'm like, Really? Someone criticizes me and I think, Persecution? The snake bites. The little things often are what get us. I'll fight the big storms, but when the snake bites, man, Paul, he's just survived the worst voyage of his entire career, gets to dry land, and he is bitten by a snake. And I'm pretty sure if it was me, I would have been dancing around, shaking that thing off, going, you've got to be kidding! Still soaking wet from the storm? Come on, Lord, enough is enough already! Snake on my hand? (laughs) Now think about this. The bite didn't kill Paul. Didn't even make him sick or nauseous. His hand didn't swell up. Hey, that's great. Yeah, but he still got bit. The, The fang still pierced his flesh. What an annoying moment in the career of Paul. 
As the viper's fangs dug into his skin, he gets jabbed. And as I read this and thought through it, I realized it's so often these smaller pokes and prods and sticks during the week that build up these irritations and annoyances that oftentimes will undermine faith faster, more surreptitiously, than the big storms do. I go in the big storm and i got nothing to do but believe in Jesus. I have to trust in Him because this is way out of my hands. But the little pokes, the irritations, these things can capsize faith. Let's call them snake bites. We all get them. And I want to turn the question around this morning a little bit and ask, instead of how much are we willing to suffer for Jesus, how little are you willing to suffer? How many of these little annoyances are you willing to receive in the name of Jesus Christ? When they had been brought safely through, then we found out the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Now let me give you a little background here. Malta is an island in the Mediterranean Sea about 100 miles south of the southern tip of Italy. You can find it on a map today. It is the traditional site of Paul's shipwreck. And many Maltese consider that a point of pride. Even now, 2,000 years later, it is a, a certainty of tourism bucks. But there's been some controversy over this story. And over the fact that the word Malta is used, and Malta is the island that is indicated because, my friends, there are no vipers on Malta today. And there never have been. In all of its history. Now, now, traditionalists and tour guides, they alike refer to St. Paul's Viper. If you were to visit Malta today, and perhaps some of you have, you could tour different sites, different churches set out, And the guides would talk to you about St. Paul's Viper, what they would call Illithga. And Illithga is literally the leopard snake. They say the viper is actually the leopard snake, which is a snake that is indigenous to Malta. And that's one of the ways that they explain away the fact that there have been no vipers on the island. They ignore the fact that Illithga, this species of snake, this leopard snake, is not venomous. That it doesn't have the ability to poison They either ignore it or they say that Paul supernaturally caused it to lose its venom when he came to the island and then generations of Ilifka after that no more were venomous because Paul said that's enough. But the Bible doesn't call it a leopard snake. The Bible very very clearly calls it a venomous viper or adder. This word in the Greek for viper, echidna, means a venomous snake, a venomous viper or a venomous adder. It can go either way. It's probably what scientists call the vipera amoditis or the sand viper. The sand viper or the horned viper. And some explain this away as well. They'll say, okay, well, maybe it was a viper, but this viper has since become extinct. That's why there are no vipers or no species on the island of Malta today. But there's no evidence it was ever there in the first place. None whatsoever. Nothing in the fossil record indicates the presence of this venomous snake on Malta. 
There is no evidence of what they would call an extinction event. An extinction event? Yeah, this would be like the introduction of a predator or a competing species that could wipe out all the vipers while miraculously leaving every other species of snake on the island virtually untouched. No history of it. Now others say, well, we can explain it this way. The viper actually hitched a ride from the last stop to Malta. Made its way onto the boat, hopped onto a piece of driftwood after the shipwreck, floated to shore, was curled up under the wood as Paul picked it up and bit Paul. And that's how it happened. Now, that sounds ridiculous. Although... Non-indigenous reptiles have been introduced to new continents by hanging on to driftwood. That actually has been shown plausible. So is that what happened? Well, there's another problem. If you think that the snake somehow made its way to Malta, then how do the indigenous personnel, that is the natives of the island, how do they know to watch for it to kill Paul and make him swell up? How do they have any information or insight on this particular snake if it is not an indigenous snake? So it must be an indigenous snake to Malta, and it must be poisonous, and neither one of them fit the scenario. Hmm. Down in verse 6, Dr. Luke points this out. He, he, he shows that they were expecting Paul to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. Now that's what the sand viper does. The paraamoditis, the, the symptoms include hemorrhagic edema, which is swelling, faintness, dizziness, circulatory shock, pulmonary, uh, pulmonary congestion, which leads to internal bleeding and death. And in fact, a bite from this particular snake will bring death very quickly, if not immediately treated in some way. And Paul didn't die. And Paul didn't swell up. It didn't show a single symptom, and they were all amazed. We've got a problem. This snake was not a Maltese reptile. But the issue is not biblical error, as some have, have tried to claim. The issue actually is human error. You're going to love this. We're on the wrong island. Malta, the island of Malta, is, yes, a hundred miles or so south of Italy. But where did Luke say they were thrashing about in the ocean? Why don't you look back at verse 27? We were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea. Well, the Adriatic Sea is not south of Italy. It is west of Italy. So it can't be Malta. And as a matter of fact, if you look at verse 1, the word that's translated Malta in the Greek is Melita. It's a different island. And the island of Melita is in the Adriatic Sea. It's a tiny little island directly west of Italy. Melita, that's the right spot. And by the way, until 1910, little Melita was so heavily infested with the sand viper that the Italians introduced mongooses into the island to control the snake population. Make sure when you study the Bible that you get on the right island. And don't make the immediate assumption that it's biblical error. If we don't understand something scripturally, it's human error. And I found that to be the case over and over and over where we make some wrong assumption or we bring some baggage of assumptions into our Bible study and we say, well, that can't be. That's not possible. 
If we don't understand Scripture, it's because we've got something wrong in our own thinking. And it always comes to light. But get this. Acts 27.25 Paul said, Therefore keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But, listen, but we must run aground on a certain island. God told Paul, you're all going to be spared. The ship won't. That's going down. But you will all be spared. But you must run aground on a certain island. And I believe that tiny, insignificant Melita was on God's mind. That this was the island he wanted to make sure Paul stopped at on his way to Rome. Not Malta, not at that time, but Melita. Insignificant, barely known Melita. Why would God care about Melita? Because God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And we see these examples throughout Scripture as well, that God looks to the individual. God looks to the insignificant. God looks to the one that no one else is thinking about. God looks to the person who may not even be on the map and says, this group of people matter to me. I want to make sure that Melita gets an audience with the Apostle Paul. I have some work to do on this little island. Well, that's the big storm. What about the little bite? Paul is now out of the storm on the island of Melita in the Adriatic Sea, but he's into the snake pit. So back to our original question, when is enough enough, Lord? Beatings, stonings, chains, prisons, storms, shipwrecks, and now snake bites. And I want to ask this question, why does God allow the snake to bite? He sees us through the heavy-duty stuff. Why the little annoyances? Why does a brother or sister sometimes come at me and i got to deal with that? Why the little irritations? Why do you allow these, Lord? Why does God allow the snake to bite? Well, Romans 8.28, we all know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And I would submit to you this morning, God causes all things, which includes the little things. The little irritations. Everything Satan intends for evil, God uses for good. Everything. And even as Paul, as God doesn't overlook the little island of Melita, so He doesn't overlook the little pains and annoyances of our lives that He even with those can use for sanctification, for His glorification, and for the salvation of someone else whose eyes are on me who doesn't yet know Jesus. Snake bites. I want to give you four quick things to jot down about snake bites this morning. Number one, snake bites reveal the servant. Snake bites reveal the servant. Look at verse 3 again. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Had Paul been lounging on the beach doing nothing to help out, he never would have been bitten. If he hadn't been involved in serving. But you see, the servant heart of Jesus was in Paul. And he had to be a part of the solution. He's on the beach there. 
I imagine Paul's still in chains. Now, I don't know if he was or not. But if he was, he's gathering sticks in chains, trying to help build the fire to warm the men. Paul is the one throughout the journeys who's encouraging the men, who's saying, take some food to eat, strengthen yourself. An angel appeared to me. It's good news. We're all going to be saved. Don't worry. And now he's on the beach, and he's not kicking back in a lounge chair enjoying the Mediterranean. He is serving. And that's when the snake bites him. All because you gather a bundle of sticks to warm others. Gang, the snake loves to bite the servant. The snake loves to do little things. And I'm talking about our enemy, the devil. Loves to do little things to discourage serving. You stack chairs on a Sunday and when you set them back up, someone says, well, that's not right. And my heart would say, fine, you stack them yourself next time. Snake bite. The snake loves to spoil the work of the servant. Remember the very first warning of the serpent? And I mean when the serpent himself was warned. In the Garden of Eden, God warned the serpent about a servant who was to come. Who would be the serpent's undoing. Genesis 3.15 He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now get this, when the snake bit Jesus as a picture, it was no small thing. The heels of Jesus were horribly bruised as the spikes went through his feet and into the cross. It was the most venomous bite the serpent could muster. His involvement, His work with the cross. But if you follow Jesus, even as a simple servant, you've got to expect to be bitten. If you're going to gather sticks to warm the fellowship, expect the occasional bite. Understand you're going to get stuck. Devilish irritations are meant to discourage and to dissuade the work of the servant of the Lord. Don't let them. Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And that's big persecution like the storms, and it's little persecutions like snake bites. You're going to take it on the chin. You're going to get stuck. Last week in that call to righteousness, which again, I'm going to bring it up a lot, gang, because I believe God is calling this fellowship to righteousness. But that call that we got invites irritation. It invites problems and challenges and persecutions because snake bites reveal the servant of the Lord. Snake bites happen to those who serve. Secondly, snake bites also reveal the servant's sincerity. In this case, it sets up the truth of Paul's innocence in front of all those who are watching. Look at verse 4. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began to say to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Justice? Decay. Decay in the Greek. The Greek goddess of justice. And they believed, and and perhaps here we're espousing that, that the goddess justice didn't kill Paul in the storm, 
But now he's bitten by the snake. And therefore, though rescued from the storm, now he's bitten by the snake. He must still be a, a guilty man. Guilty of murder. And so they look at him as a murderer. But you know God doesn't work that way. He doesn't play games like that. Paul's survival of storm and snake bite was not a proof of justice. But the Lord uses this scenario to open the hearts of those who are watching. He knows the people of Melita. See, God does. He's intimately familiar with them. He cares about them. And so through this snake bite in in Paul's life, he sets up a situation where they will sit up and pay attention. Gang, the natives are watching. The indigenous people, the people of the world, are watching. They're watching to see how you, how I handle the irritants. They're looking at us to see what are we going to do when the problems strike, when things go wrong. Do you go walking into work complaining about people at church? Can I just side note and tell you it's one of the worst things you can do in the world? Complain to non-believers about believers. They don't need any help, gang. If you're going to complain to anyone, I would suggest you complain to the Lord. Take it directly to Jesus. You got complaints, you got issues, you got problems, you talk to Him about it. And if you have a problem with a brother or sister, the Bible says you go to them and deal with them in love and with a heart to restore. The natives are watching. Psalm 101 verse 6 says, My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. Apply that gang in the work of the evangelist. It's the blameless who can minister. It's the one who is walking pure and clean before Jesus. It's the man or the woman who's practicing righteousness that has the, the, the ability to serve people who don't understand righteousness. It's not looking unrighteous that allows me a foothold into the world. It's not behaving like the world that gets me to bring the message of the gospel to the world. No, it's being righteous. And it's how I handle the challenges of this life differently. By the Spirit of God. When the irritations come at home, at work, in front of my friends, that I don't lose it. I don't dance around going, this is so unfair. Trying to shake off the snake. Paul just shakes it off. He's cool. We don't see him losing it. My heart and my reaction, and and this is something I think about a lot in my own life. I really do. How does my behavior reveal Jesus? How does my attitude, my walk, my dress, my look, how, how am I revealing Jesus to someone who I might not even know if they believe or not? How many people, when you're in Safeway, how many people are Christians and how many are not? Do you know? I have no idea. Unless I run into someone who I happen to know as a brother or sister. When you're on the airplane, who on the plane sitting with you believes in Jesus? Who doesn't? And when things are going wrong and the seat is uncomfortable and the stewardess is being lame, (laughs) how you react is going to say something. The world is watching. The natives are watching. They're all gathered around Paul. Bitten by the snake. 
And they're going, what's going to happen? He's going down. He's got to go down. He's a murderer. He's going to die. Watch, he's going to swell up and down he goes. They're watching Paul. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1 says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Do people regard you in that manner? Do those around you look at you and see in you a servant of Christ and one who holds, who has, who is a steward of the mysteries of God? Paul says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Are we trustworthy with the gospel that we've been given? So, snake bites reveal the servant. And snake bites reveal the servant's sincerity. Number three, snake bites reveal the servant's serenity. Verse five. However, he shook off the creature into the fire. He suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. It's so funny. He's a murderer. He's a god. Make up your mind. And the world can be so fickle in how they view somebody. But this had an impact on them. And what we see here is a serene Paul. A Paul who is unfazed by the bite. We don't see him jumping up and down. We don't see him howling and moaning and whining about the pains in his life. We see a man at peace. He shakes it off into the fire. What do you do when the snake bites? How do you react? I encourage you to take the lead of Paul. When the snake bites, first of all, see it for what it is. A venomous viper. You see, we don't, we don't judge things by flesh and blood. We judge by the Spirit. And we see when the viper is attacking. And we see when Satan is trying to undermine. When he's trying to irritate or annoy. We look at it this way. What do you do when the serpent bites? Shake it back into the fire. Just shake it back into the fire. Uh, side note. And please get this. The fires of hell are not the devil's dominion. They are the devil's destination. And I know it's a, it's a colloquialism for us to say, we're going to send this back into the fires of hell. We're, we're sending Satan back where he belongs, into the fires of hell. We're sending him home. Hell is not home for Satan. Not right now. You know where Satan's home is right now? This planet. This world. And the Bible's clear about this. He, he moves around this earth like a roaring lion seeking to whom he can devour. He's looking for opportune times. He is on the move. Satan and the demons are not in hell. They're right here. That's where they're headed. He's not lord over that fiery domain. That fiery domain, Jesus tells us, was created for the devil and his angels. But they're not there now, not yet. The Bible tells us he doesn't come up from hell, but he is going back down, not back down, he's going down to hell. 
Revelation 20 verse 10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What a picture. Paul shakes the snake into the fire. The devil is going into the fire. That is his destination. Feel free. When you have been snake bitten, when you have been poked or prodded or hurt in some way, feel free to say, Satan, I know where you're headed. So get out of my life and back on your course. Because his final destination is hell. Servants of the Lord, when the snake bites, don't swell up. Don't have a heart attack. Don't play the victim. Instead, consider the example of Jesus. What did Jesus do when the snake bit? He said to Thomas, John chapter 20, reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, what does that tell us about how Jesus handled the worst snake bite in all history? It tells us, gang, that his wounds are marks of overcoming victory. They are proof of our salvation. They show what has been, what needed to happen, has happened, has taken place. I think of my dad. He used to come into the house. Saturdays were work days around my house. They were not Shabbat. I would try and get on my bike as early as I could Saturday morning just to get out before the work started. You know. But my dad, he would, he would hit the garage on Saturday mornings and he'd be out there working on the car back when you could work on a car without a degree. And he'd be out there working on it, and there'd be oil everywhere, and he'd be building stuff and fixing things and clinking and clanking, and he'd walk into the house covered in grease and blood. I kid you not, three out of four Saturdays, he would walk in bleeding down his face. And my dad has a very high tolerance for pain, so nine times out of ten, he didn't even know he was bleeding. Dad, you're bleeding. He's like, oh, yeah, I am. (laughs) But I got that carburetor rebuilt. (laughs) It was a sign of his victory. It didn't bother him at all. His wounds were his victory. Now I know that's kind of a lame example, but listen. Any wounds, any scars that I receive in the service of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even snake bites are good scars. They show I'm in the service of Jesus. They remind me as I remember those scars that I am working for Him and that I'm saved. That victory has already taken place. No, it doesn't feel good when you're bitten. I'm sure Paul didn't go, Hey, look, a viper. (laughs) Glory, hallelujah. But the wounds would be a reminder that he was on his way to Rome to preach the victorious message of the Gospel. Paul said in Galatians 6.17, one of my favorite verses, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. What do you think Paul saw every time he glanced in the mirror? The scars... What do you think he thought when he felt the occasional ache of the scourging wounds on his back? I think he remembered Jesus. 
I can't imagine that someone who had been scourged as many times as Paul had wouldn't have occasional sharp spikes of pain. He could be in the middle of a Bible study and all of a sudden, oh, yeah. And yet when those, those spikes of pain happened, what would Paul think? Thank you, Lord. Oh, in the name of Jesus. The wounds are for you, Lord. You see, the snake bites reveal the servant's sincerity. They reveal the innocence. They reveal the trust that we have in Jesus. And one of the best things the snake bites can do, number four, final one, is snake bites can reveal the Savior. They reveal the Savior to the world and to the servant of the Lord. That how we respond can show someone Jesus, but also to me. They can reveal the Savior. You see, the children of Israel were irritated. They were tired. They were frustrated. They were complaining again in the wilderness. And in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4, it says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of their journey. The people spoke out against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable food that is the manna that God was providing. We're sick of the manna bread. We're tired of manicotti. Make up your own. They're whining and complaining. They feel like they're getting bitten. Well, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. You want to be irritated? I'll give you something to irritate you. You want to be annoyed? Check this out. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. You think? Because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And in one of the bizarrest things I think God ever did, listen to this, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And when it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it up on a standard or on a pole. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man... When he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. That tells us a few things. It tells us, first of all, it tells us that the people were still getting bit. God did not immediately wipe out the serpents and take them away. They kept biting the people even after they asked for forgiveness. Even after they said, we were wrong, we've sinned. Uh, Pray to the Lord for us. Intercede, Moses. He did. He makes the bronze serpent. And now the people are going to have to continue to be bit. But when they're bit, to look to the snake on the pole. And if they looked at the snake on the pole, healed. Immediately. Because, you see, snake bites reveal the Savior. Snake bites reveal the Savior. You Bible students know the whole event was a portent. 
a prophetic picture designed beautifully by God. Look to the serpent on the pole and live. And Jesus said in John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him, whoever looks to Him, will have eternal life. God was doing more than saving His people. His people Israel. He was doing more than teaching the people of Israel a lesson on faith there in the wilderness. <coughs> Excuse me. God was securing a sign in the desert so bizarre and yet so recognizable nobody could miss it. A serpent on a pole. The sign of Christ on the cross. And it's such a stunning sign because the serpent represents not Satan, but Jesus. The snake on the stick is a picture of Jesus, the Savior, on the cross. How does that work? And by the way, it wasn't Paul who said this. And it wasn't Peter and it wasn't John who compared Jesus to the snake on the pole. It was Jesus who did that. It was Jesus who said, there's an example to you of what I'm going to look like on the cross. What's that, Lord? Sin. I am sin on the cross. The Bible says He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. In Him, the Lamb became the snake. The Lamb filled with the poison of our sin would now hang on the cross. And if we would look to Him, we would find our salvation. Amazing. In so doing, Jesus crushed the serpent's head. Because snake bites, gang, they can reveal the Savior. If we will look to Him, if you get bit, if you get poked, if you get jabbed, look to Jesus and you will see your Savior. Look to Him in faith. If you've got a snake bite, if there's something poisoning you, heart or mind, the Bible says, Isaiah 45.22, Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look to me. You don't look at the source of the bite. You don't look around at other people in horror. You look to the Lord. The way to be saved from the poison and the venom and the lasting sting of any snake bite is to look to Jesus because He's the one bruised of heel who crushes the serpent's head. Amen? Amen. Now, quickly. Paul went from murderer to God in one bite. Immediately, now, they're looking at him as as something other. Something amazing. Something miraculous. You know, Paul wasn't either one. He was neither murderer nor was he God. But the Lord uses the snake bite here to set up a greater salvation. Look quickly at verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Winnie the Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And when Paul went in to see him and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and he healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him, and they were getting cured. And they honored us with many marks of respect, 
And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. What a marvelous story. And all of this happened on little Melita that would have been completely bypassed had had Paul had smooth sailing. Had everything gone according to plan, they would never have landed on Melita. But now everybody's getting healed. There's a massive healing service taking place on this tiny island. And it begins with the father of the governor of that island. Dr. Luke uses a couple of words here that Dr. Luke would know well. A word for fever, actually it's a plural form, fevers. That the father of Publius has fevers. This is multiple or recurring fevers that would come and leave and come and leave. And recurrent dysentery. And the words in the Greek for fevers and dysentery are only used here in this story. Very specific illness we believe that Luke is referring to. In fact, it's thought by experts in this that what his father, Publius' his father, was suffering from was a bad case of food poisoning. But a killing food poisoning. In fact, it was known in the region, it was a deadly food poisoning from drinking goat's milk that had been spoiled in some way or another. Goat's milk that was diseased. And if you drank this, you would end up with recurring fevers and dysentery that would lead to death. Well, Paul heals this man of these things. I tell you that because we need to understand that what happens on Melita is a fulfillment of prophecy, a prophecy Jesus spoke 30 years before. He said in Mark chapter 16, verse 17, these signs will follow after or accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. Well, we've seen that, right? And they will speak with new tongues. We've seen that throughout the book of Acts as well. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Then they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Mark 16.18 describes exactly what we have seen take place on the island of Melita. First the snake bite, then the drinking of deadly poison, then the laying on of hands and recovery. And I want you to understand, in Mark 16.18, where he talks about the drinking of deadly poison and being bitten by deadly snakes and they will not affect them, my friends, the point is not to be snake handlers. (laughs) It's not poison guzzlers. I mean, that's just dumb. It really is. It's ridiculous to take that verse and to put it in that way. Well, we'll prove our faith. We're going to handle snakes. Next Sunday, show up early. Joe's going to show us how. (laughs) Understand that Jesus did not say these signs, these signs will be chased down by those who believe. He doesn't say these signs will be pursued by my people. No. He says these signs will follow after those who believe. We're not sign chasers. We're not playing around with snakes. We're not trying to drink deadly poison. This man's father was sick inadvertently. He didn't intend to drink this, but he was poisoned by it. And what the Lord is declaring, what He is saying here, is that through the storms and through the snake bites, through the sicknesses, if we believe God, if we have faith in Jesus in all things, He will see us through. He will bring the healing when the healing needs to come. He will do what's necessary for the kingdom and for His purposes. Our job is to believe God. To trust Him. 
And I am absolutely convinced through the hardships, through the storms and the snakes and the sicknesses, that salvation came to Melita. So the question again is how much or how little are you willing to suffer for salvation? Not yours. Not yours. You don't buy your salvation through an amount of suffering. But you may be used by the Lord for someone else's salvation depending on how you deal with your suffering. I'll leave you with this final thought. People all over the island were getting healed right and left except for Paul. Well, what about the snake bite? I'll grant you, he he was healed of that, he was protected from that, he shook off the snake. But Paul still has the thorn. He still has the thorn in his side. He will suffer with that for the rest of his life. A thorn in his flesh. He he brings it to the Lord. He, He says three times, Lord, take away this irritation. Take away this annoyance, Father, this frustration, this stinging thorn. Would you take this away? But then Paul says, 2 Corinthians 12.9, But he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. May the power of Christ dwell in you. Whether you're in the midst of great storms or just annoyed by little bites, may the power of Christ dwell in you, be seen in you, even as I pray it is seen in me. This is our final Sunday, as I said, in the book of Acts. A new breed of people born again of the Spirit of God manifesting Jesus, preaching the Kingdom of God in this world. We are at the end, not of the book of Acts. We are at the end of that age. So how much or how little are you willing to suffer for the namesake of Jesus?